Good morning and welcome to episode 10 of Burn After Pitching, the Pitch Podcast. This is a roundtable podcast where podcasters, medians, writers, and walking, talking robots of destruction are challenged to pitch their ideas on a theme or property or abstract concept, and we either build them up or tear them down. Fun. This episode, we are covering one real pitch from each of our guests. This episode, we are chumming the Academy waters, and we are pitching Oscar Bates. I'm the host for this episode, Michael Tanner, co-creator and writer of Junior Braves The Apocalypse. On the panel today... Andy Nordvall, a frequent contributor to Burn After Pitching and host. Uh, I do the webcomic My Roommate the Internet and the book Siren Song. I'm uh, Brandon Burkhart. I'm a comedy writer. Um, I have a monthly stage show, which is now under, under lockdown, the Nightcap with Stacey Roommaker, where I'm the head writer. We're going to start doing more digital stuff. You can find me on uh, Twitter at Burkhart Brandon. Uh, I am Kieran DeLeon Horton. I work in documentary in Los Angeles. A lot of, I don't know, history and science and used to be crime. Not so much of that these days. And I uh, do a little writing on the side, too. So how is everyone's quarantine going? Very exciting. I've got my fingers crossed that pitches will actually be uh, Academy Oscar eligible by the time uh, the Oscars rolls around. So. Oh yeah, it's a uh, 2020 is the year without Santa Claus or movie theater attendance for the most part. And due to those old-fashioned Academy rules, movies must have a theatrical run in order to be eligible for the Oscars. So we're I, looking at Bloodshot. I think they are accepting streaming. Vin Diesel being the yeah. front runner for Best Picture. Yeah, Bloodshot and the Invisible Man. <laughs> I think they are allowing uh, streaming, so maybe this will be Scoob's year. Who knows? Here's yeah. Cross. Yeah. All right, so here's how the show works. If each of the panelists the topic ahead of time, which is Oscar Bates, uh, and they were able to prepare their initial pitch, they'll present their pitch, and the rest of us can uh, ask questions, spitball ideas, and make it better or make it worse. Hopefully it's fun for everyone. But before we get to that, let's do our new Hallmark segment. Ooh, the surprise pitch. Peter Tyler, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Uh, yes, I am here. Uh, and uh, how are you guys doing? Welcome, everybody. Uh, Producer Tyler here. And, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis recently retired, but just realized that he made a huge, huge mistake. And he wanted to venture in something he's never ventured in before. He wants to be a cartoon animal and have his own story. So I need... We need to have a great story for uh, Mr. Day Lewis to be to pick. So, what are your animal animated films for Daniel Day Lewis? Just to clarify, he retired from acting. I think he's still going strong in uh, cobblery, right? Yeah, I, I believe so. I think he just stopped everything. I think he was just kind of like done. He's just like he's just gonna just fade into matter. He's being very method about retiring. I think is what it is. He's essentially doing what all of us are doing. He must feel really kind of ripped <laughs> yeah. off. Like, I mean, all I do is sit at home all day in my, in my uh, pants. That's what everyone does, Daniel. Okay, Basically, so. Uh, Daniel Day Off Lewis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, so panelists, we'll give, you, uh, we'll give you a couple minutes that we'll edit out and have you uh, pitch your uh, Daniel Day Lewis animated film animal character movie. All right, so uh, Tyler, stop tape. We are prepared to pitch our return voiceover actor showcase for Daniel Day-Lewis. Who would like to go first? I can jump in. Okay, Andy. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis, he is an actor's actor. And so to be a cartoon animal, he should play the most actorly of all cartoon animals. Of course, Snagglepuss. Taking Snagglepuss up to the next level. You know, he's, he's very committed to the theater. He's always exiting stage left, exiting stage right. Danny DeLewis can go to the solo Snagglepuss as he tries to prepare for some sort of weighty Shakespearean role and has to juggle preparing for a truly moving and emotionally resonant performance. Meanwhile, of course, he has to avoid anvils getting dropped on his head and juggling lit sticks of dynamite taped together and all the things that cartoon animals have to deal with. But, you know, this time it's it's for the art. That's why he he must survive and go on stage. We could even call it Enter stage left so yes Dana day lewis as snagglepuss this be inspired by the recent dc comics hanna barbera snagglepuss series 
that had Snagopus as essentially Tennessee Williams was about McCarthyism. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was also about homophobia because, you know, didn't he? I, I've, I haven't read the new Snagopus, but I've heard it's they've been doing really interesting things with their Hanna-Barbera adaptations. I know. Definitely. I don't know. It's Daniel, a... he, you know, he's going to do what he's going to do. He, he will decide on the the accent, nationality, whatever, you know. I'm sure after months of living with big cats, he will know what to do. Okay. All right. Daniel Day-Lewis as Snagglepuss. Who would like to go next? I can go. Okay, Brandon. Yeah. Um, take a special project to get Daniel Day-Lewis to uh, come back for an animated movie. Uh, and I also like when um, actors take a surprising Christian turn. They decide they want to make something Christian. Um, and I think Daniel Day-Lewis would would be excited about the challenge playing every animal on Noah's Ark. Oh. He will have, he'll play, he'll play, you know, the male and female of the pair, every animal on Noah's Ark with accurate regional dialects for each animal on a racial way, in a convincing way. And, um, Freeman, of course, will play the voice of God. And uh, Anthony Hopkins will play Noah. Then it'll be just the movie will just be called Ark. And Monday Lewis will stun as all these animals. The double entendre is the movie's called Ark after the big boat, but also Monday Lewis pulls off a specific buried character arc for each of the animals. And is also the voice of the Ark. He's uh yes, he's Purple the Duty. I actually I want to in a cameo, I, I do want Alan Arkin to play the art. <laughs> I do love the puns. Um yeah. and then it'll be the first time not to not to jump ahead on categories, it'll be the first time an actor wins best actor for a voice in the movie. Love it. That is a strong, that is a strong and bold direction for Daniel Day-Lewis, kind of following the Greg Kinnear mold of like being Oscar nominated and then just doing Christian movies. Yes. So it's, it was fun. It was like a weird, like Kirk Cameron. Sure. I get, he was a TV guy. Like Greg Kinnear. He's like a I real guy. Yeah. He does a lot of like Christian movies. I don't know. I think they're maybe just paychecks for him. He does yeah. an awful lot of those like inspirational yeah. story movies. Well, Mel Gibson did too, uh, but that I think we all saw that one coming. Oh yeah, Mel Mel's got a paycheck. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, so it's down to me and Karen. Karen, do you want to go or should I go? Sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't, mine's not very long anyway. Um, I was also trying to think of something that would be prestigious enough to interest Daniel Day Lewis, and so I was uh, leaning back on folk tales, and I think that he would actually crush it as that Japanese folk tale, The Crane Wife. Uh, he would have to be a wife and a crane, but as we know, Daniel Day-Lewis is up for any challenge. So I think that the, that would be amazing. And since he's so method, the crafty would be so interesting on set. God, that'd be amazing. Imagine just like going to like Hokkaido and like seeing him <laughs> dressed as a crane, like yeah. walking along the riverbanks. Uh, I'd, I'd be, I'd be down for some Daniel Day method acting for that. And one of my favorite folk tales. Absolutely, um, learn how to make textiles just for the role, <laughs> and then he that. then he, retirement side hustle would be just doing those textiles. <laughs> He's moving um, on from shoes to textiles. He's he refuses to buy body. clothes. He's going to, to do everything himself. Yeah, cool. Are the Decemberists going to play any part? That's that's the main way I know the Crane's wife. Yeah, you know, I was thinking yes because I was also especially leaning towards the idea that this is not really a Disney type of movie. It seems more like a Leica kind of, and so I was like, yeah, they probably know each other, right? Like they're all in the same area. Seems fair. I'm sure they all frequent the same indie coffee shop. All right, so going the month's going to be a little bit closer to Andy's. I think I, I decided to go with um, going to star in a big screen adaptation. Of an existing, for me, I went with a franchise. And you know, you know what's big right now is 90s nostalgia. And the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they've never gone away. But you know what? Once popular 90s animated talking animal franchise did go away and is due for a comeback. Close. We've got Biker Mice from Mars. (laughs) Daniel Day-Lewis, he's never played a mouse as far as I know. 
he's never played a biker as far as I know. And he's never played a Martian as far as I know. This is a trifecta of untested waters for Mr. Daniel Day-Lewis. I think he would go full throttle as throttle the leader of the biker mice from Mars, who you may recognize him. He's the Tanford mouse with a, a ponytail. And I believe he wears these sunglasses. Uh, and as we all know, because we all remember biker mice oh, yes, from Mars, uh, the the three biker mice from Mars, they come to Earth to um, thwart the evil Lawrence Limburger, who is a Plutarchian, who is a fish man trying to pollute the Earth. So not only is it trifecta of new experience and character work, it is a message movie. It has an environmental message. And I think Daniel Day-Lewis is a passionate actor who would do a message movie. So, Daniel Day-Lewis as Throttle from Biker Mice from Mars. Where did that air? I have never heard of that. It was, uh, let me, I'm on the Wikipedia page right now, as you might have guessed. Uh, it debuted in 1993 and lasted for three seasons. That is shocking. Which is, yeah, shocking, because three seasons in 1993 was literally 1,200 episodes. Did it premiere like eight months after Ninja Turtles? Well, it was definitely a late stage uh, Ninja Turtles uh, follower. Because, you know, Ninja Turtles hit hit big like 88, 89. Mm -hmm. Um, So then you had like Street Sharks. You had Biker Mice from Mars. Samurai Pizza Cats. Um, You had a lot of Johnny Come Lately's to the anthropomorphic animal genre. Um, but Daniel Day Lewis, he'd he'd make that if I dare say it, Oscar bait animation work. All right. So those are our improvised pitches for Daniel Day Lewis. I just like saying his name. It's a fun name to say, Daniel Day Lewis. Great if actor. A Daniel Lewis that made him have to take the middle name, or probably he just liked the sound of it. Or maybe there was a, a Daniel Day, and he had to add the Lewis to it. Oh yeah, that's true. All right, so. <laughs> If we're ready for our big, big time Oscar bait, I'm going to assume that every, everyone here on the panel knows what the term Oscar bait means. But for our audiences at home, I would explain it to you, but just watch the Lindsay Ellis YouTube essay on what Oscar bait is. All right. So uh, who would like to give us their Oscar bait movie pitch? I can go, but I went first last time. I don't want to hog the mic. I can go. Mine's actually not so long. All right. So Kieran. All right. Well, um, so yeah, Oscar bait, you know, usually sort of viewed as a little bit indulgent and kind of trying to achieve something kind of commercial, even though it's supposed to be prestigious. Uh, but actually, like it, as we know, it can be good stuff. So I came up with this idea that I actually got backed into a corner because I realized I'm absolutely not the person that should be telling this story, but it is absolutely a story that genuinely should be told, which is the story of the Japanese farmers and soldiers in World War II, which is put it delicately, obviously quite relevant these days. Um, but uh, there was uh, a time when uh, there was a high influx of Japanese farmers in country and uh the early 1900s and they became excellent excellent farmers uh, providing a high percentage of a lot of our crops uh, across the united states and then when pearl harbor was bombed literally hours afterward a agricultural concern rushed to washington dc and tried to push forward what we now you know eventually internment etc and that land was snapped up um and as then, as we know, after internment or during internment, there uh, was a Japanese regiment that went on to become one of the most highly decorated uh, regiments uh, for their size in World War II. So what I wanted to tell was a story of uh, a first generation Japanese American who, uh, who was born here, uh, was into the internment camps and then uh, joined that regiment and then fought in the war and then comes back home reason why my pitch is short is because I am not a Japanese American and I realized it's very inappropriate uh, to, for me to be telling a story like that. But I do think it's absolutely like a great and amazing story with amazing people in it uh, from many angles. Um, and I was trying to contemplate even how you would tell the story. Obviously, the protagonist, like I said, would be somebody who was uh, born here, goes to the camps, goes to the regiments, comes back home. But I also didn't want it to be 
add because I feel like there's no reason to just a tearjerker of that kind of story, even though obviously there was a lot of tragedy involved. I was actually leaning towards the end, kind of being almost like the end of Inglorious Bastards, where you come to realize that it's like, oh, this is not actually how the <laughs> these circumstances went. But it is like truly most satisfying ending you want. So I wanted something where people who returned, instead of finding that their uh, lands were no longer there or you know taken by their neighbors or what have you, like it's something where the community actually uh, went another direction, as it did sometimes, and their protected lands were given back, they were given damages, et cetera, and uh, integrated in, as the full citizens that they were. Um, and then uh, probably see, you know, like some denouement far in the future where we see what that's like. Um, but and uh, me not being the appropriate person to tell the story, like I got backed further and further into a corner, realizing like, oh, man, I can't I, I don't even know if I can pitch this. But it's such an important story that I was like, yeah, I think I should probably just go ahead and go for it. So <laughs> uh, that's yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's a very loose pitch since I couldn't really develop it too far for those reasons. But yeah, that's I, I don't even have a name for it. Probably something like Nisei or Go for Broke, which was the regimental um, uh, motto for that Japanese regiment. Well, I'm not sure um, about that regiment. I think there were uh, Japanese Americans serving in the military whose families were stuck in the camps, which. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And that's what I kind of imagined there would be parallel storylines with uh, someone, the protagonist, probably in the field while, or choice words, um, in the war while uh, there's one that's still in internment. Yeah, yeah there's, that's not a subject that has gotten Hollywood treatment. There's the um, Dennis Quaid movie oh, from yeah. 1990. Uh, here, you're right. I come see the paradise, which is honestly that I was 11 when that movie came out, 10 or 11. And that was literally watching like entertainment tonight when they were doing like promos for that movie was how I learned about the Japanese internment in world war two. Um, and I'm sure, I mean, literally that movie, the, the main character is Dennis Quaid. That's going to tell yeah. you like the viewpoint <laughs> of the movie. It's that he, you know, he has a Japanese wife and a Japanese daughter. So like, that is one of those things where it is hard to think like, Oh, this is a great story. Someone should tell it. I want to tell it. Am I the person who should be telling this story? Probably not. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, that is a socially conscious movie. It is a like period piece. Uh, it is, it's, it clicks Oscar bait boxes. It, it clicks uh, old time Hollywood and where we are now, which is a nice, a nice mix. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. It's like, especially, I mean, the, I didn't, I don't think I even thought of any ideas outside of history because that's like such an easy Oscar bait thing to reach for. And then, yeah, but the double-sided part of that, of course, is like, well, if it's not your history, you got to think twice. So, yeah. I keep, I, I feel like I keep hearing talk about an adaptation of George Takei's right. autobiographical graphic novel, um, which I'm, I think baseball is in the title. I can't remember, but there, I still feel like I hear a lot of talk played, about that getting he? adapted. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure he's done it as a play because he, yeah. he did that. Um, uh, did he start East West Players in LA, or he was deeply involved with it? I think I know he's involved. I'm not sure if he's one of the founders. Yeah, so. yeah. So I, I feel like it's something that is I maybe coming. It's in, the, yeah, it's in the the zeitgeist. Yeah, and yeah, it it does seem like there are actually genuinely some efforts for people telling their own stories that are coming forward, uh, even despite like the current pandemic, like uh, a friend of ours, uh, you know, like an HBO kind of pitch contest. And it's uh, specifically about telling her own story. And she's an American. So like, it, it doesn't have to be realistic. But yeah, I was looking forward to that. It was supposed to debut at Tribeca. But <laughs> that, uh, I'll see. Yeah, well, the other like, great thing happens. is you want something that's not going to shoot in America, because we can probably shoot outside of America in a year. Right. But God knows when things are going to be safe now, you know. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Andy, because that ties into mine. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not just Oscar bait, but any movie. Don't do anything that shoots in America, because man, we're gonna <laughs> probably have this virus for like the next decade. Mine uh, shoots in outer space. I beg your pardon. Mine shoots in outer space. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, Tom Cruise and Elon yeah, Musk are working on that. Yeah. So here, did you have any like no fan casting for it? And casting? Any actors you would see, like, oh, oh I want this person to play. No, honestly, that was one of the problems that I ran across is when I was thinking about, because uh, I, I know it came up that we should maybe think about who would we'd like to direct or 
asked and and it's kind of a problem where it's like representation matters and i literally didn't want to just like google japanese american actors and then be like oh yeah i kind of recognize that guy from you know yeah. heroes i just don't mm. know enough like i thought of i know because i watch a lot of sci-fi i know more canadian asian actors than i know american uh, asian american actors so, um, and I do think uh, for obvious reasons, like it would be pretty significant to try and cast fully specifically Japanese Americans in a project like this and not just uh, someone that can pass, you know? Oh yeah, true. I'm trying to think I'm, I'm blanking as well. I mean, that's the, that's the hard thing is like, you've got this huge hit. Um, and from that spent spun out of that, there's a lot of like Asian American actors who are kind of getting their, you know, their moment, so to speak, yeah. like Aquafina or, um, yeah. Yeah, who's going to play Shang-Chi and Master of Kung Fu for Marvel uh, from Kim Convenience? Like, I can't think of that yeah. dude's name right now. Sima Lu? I could be wrong. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, then I really mean, do for this something very specific. You can't just cast wide net, even though that net is very narrow. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tricky because I'm trying to think a lot of the up and coming Asian, American, Asian, Canadian, I, I think are, are Chinese Amer- are of Chinese ancestry. I can't think of anyone uh, Japanese. Uh, and I'm just talking at my butt here. I don't know if this is true, but that would also make sense to some degree because there's so much shooting in in Vancouver. Like I know I, I my in laws like are these uh, Canadian in Vancouver. There's so just a very large population there. Um, but uh, also, yeah, like it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, and I think even like I said, my friend had she uh, was uh, trying to cast uh, according to actual accuracy as well, and to remember somebody specifically uh i can't remember yeah there's uh casting is oh hey, that's what it was sorry the guy um uh the guy that uh is he's on sorry's friend who is chinese american i'm i apologize who is it cannot think of, i can't remember his name yeah. but i remember he, him from that show and yeah uh, and he was talking about um yeah like how it is kind of i'm not to put words in his mouth i just uh, really thought some interesting insights about how it's just it actually is sometimes apparently hard to find asian american actors and when there is nowhere to cast like projects where they're not cast in to begin with of course that makes the pool that much better work because you don't have a job you you go elsewhere all right so okay so first pitch done okay so uh who would like to go next brandon i think you had a pandemic yeah, I, I, I can epic. go i came from a slightly different angle as far as I wasn't thinking so much as like a theme that would be Oscar bait. I was thinking of what actors don't have an Oscar or <laughs> um, do for one. And um, I was looking at a list of like big actors without Oscar wins. And I was confused because I could have sworn Tom Cruise won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for Magnolia. I think I dreamed that. He should have. Yeah, that's. That he has was- no Oscars. I think it's a Bernstein, Barnstein, Bears thing where I thought that happened in a different universe. He had a Best Supporting Actor Oscar, but he's he's 0 for 3 nominations. I forget um, who won, but yeah, I remember really wanting Tom Cruise to win for Magnolia because that was amazing. I like, could totally remember him winning. Maybe I'm thinking of the Golden Globes. It just crossed my mind um, wrong. So I was thinking about him, and then I ripped my idea from the headlines that he was going to shoot a movie in space because um, a couple of reasons. You know, he might just get rewarded for taking that bold chance. The other reason is um, Oscar loves to give out the award uh, posthumously. So in my mind, Tom Cruise <laughs> going to shoot a movie in space. It gets it gets better than that. Um, so. <laughs> Tom Cruise's uh, character watched his father blow up on the Challenger when he was a kid. Dead dad issue where he wants to be live up to his father's legacy as an astronaut. Uh, so the movie starts, he's a fighter pilot, but we have flashbacks to him as a kid watching Challenger lift off and the tragedy. And he lost his father. And now he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a fighter pilot. Um, and not a top gun, a middle gun. Uh, gets to fly a plane in this one again. And he's taking care of his mother, who has dementia. Again, some more Oscar bait. Um, played by Annette Benning, Because he always casts a mom who's like five years older than the kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Annette Benning's his mother. Um, he's taking care of her. And he, um, he uh, 
he at the beginning of the movie he he collapses um, and he gets off the plane off of one of his missions. He finds out that he has uh, cerebral palsy. Oh, so, a little theory of everything, Oscar Badish. Determined, determined to live up to his father's legacy, so he decides to train with cerebral palsy to become the first astronaut with cerebral palsy. So it's a physical challenge for Tom Cruise, which he pulls off brilliantly. And um, right before he is set to lift off, he collapses again. <laughs> Turns out he has cancer on top of the cerebral palsy. He's got an inoperable brain tumor. He doesn't want admission to be canceled, so he keeps it to himself. Uh, so the climax is he gets up to space and has to start part of the film in space. And um, he loves it up there because he doesn't need his wheelchair in space because he can just use his arms to pull around in zero gravity. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like he feels like he's fully mobile again in space without a wheelchair. And, uh, of course some mishap with the mechanicals and he saves everybody on the ship and in real life uh there's a horrible accident in filming in space and tom cruise is lost uh he dies in, in an explosion in space which is tragic for his reality and his friends and family but right for his oscar chances by the way this is directed by christopher nolan with a score by Hans Zimmer. Um, Tom Cruise passes away, and they they film the they film the rest of his scenes with his brother. Uh, got his name. He was in Lost. Um, oh Matt yeah, Lillard. the brother. That's yeah, kind of a Fast and the Furious deal, where 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 the, the brother does the rest of the scenes, filming for Tom Cruise. Or if not him, Clint Howard. Clint Howard. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> uh, but brother pulls it off, and some you know and CGI and film's a huge hit uh, the next Oscars um, Dustin Hoffman apologizes Tom Cruise and then he uh, presents the Oscar for best actor of course if ever, by now everyone knows Tom Cruise got it posthumously Dustin Hoffman opens the envelope says best actor Tom Cruise everyone stands up cheering and crying and then Dustin Hoffman pulls off his face because <laughs> Tom Cruise learned how to make face masks while working on Mission Impossible. Impossible. He wasn't dead. He faked his death to win the Oscar. He pulls uh, it off. I'm not Dustin Hoffman. I'm Tom Cruise. And I give the award to myself. <laughs> People were astounded like a double acting feat. Act in the movie and also act dead for several months and to act like Dustin Hoffman. Um... So it's just like the greatest acting feat in history. He probably let them bury him alive just, you know, to show how messy he was. He was buried. There was a funeral and he dug out. He learned from some training with monks how to slow his heartbeat and appear dead. <laughs> he dug out of the grave for no one watching later. Um, and he actually took Dustin Hoffman's place for about three months and tricked Dustin Hoffman's wife and friends and family or whoever. Dustin Hoffman just locked been in the basement. On island, hiding out the whole time. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman also have been nominated for an award. It was actually Tom Cruise as Dustin Hoffman as whatever at whatever oh, character yeah, Dustin Hoffman was playing. I love that. In the meantime, Tom Cruise made maybe like a Hoffman. Golden Globe, like a, or a daytime Emmy, or just like <laughs> not not a not a Academy Award, but like you know, like an Emmy or um or like a Tony Award. Just I, to I really think, like. Yeah. Yeah. I think to really lock it, he should get cerebral palsy and then cancer and then get diagnosed with a really difficult accent like Welsh or New Zealand. And then, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I like that. So, so let's say he's got a brain tumor that makes him burst out in 16th century French <laughs> randomly. Joan of Arc disease pulls it off. Awesome. It, it's also you have a pitched irony. a new reality, not just an Oscar bait movie, a whole new reality that I desperately want to live in. Uh, that's, the, that's a lighter timeline. I, I think it's a, it's a nice irony, too, because I think the other time he was almost got an Oscar was for Born on the Fourth of July, and he lost oh. it to Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot. Oh. oh yeah. So then he Day, you know, hey, I can do that, too. There you go. I can do that in 16th century French. Yes. 
Take that, DDL. It's my Oscar right. Bay movie. Tom Cruise finally wins Good. by dying. I hate to say right. that might be what he would have to do to win at this point because uh, <laughs> yeah. he's desperate. He'll pull it off. He'll do whatever any means necessary. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, so so Andy, I don't know if you want to go or if you want to go last because I I did not invoke this privilege. I did prepare an Oscar bait pitch. If they got oh, interesting. Okay, um, go for it. Go for it. That's cool. Okay. So, do any of you know the story of Julianne Kopke? I do not. Okay, I, I'm probably mispronouncing her name. She was 18 year old German girl who was living in Peru with her parents, who were scientists. They were both zoologists, and she essentially survived a plane crash and survived on her own in the Amazonian jungle for 11 days by herself. So my Oscar bait pitch is a movie based on that. Um, So I'll give you some of the details. So she was 18. She had just kind of like graduated, but but this is, I don't know how the school system works in Peru, but essentially she was flying with her mother on Christmas Eve. And uh, they were flying from one side of Peru to the other side uh, to go meet her father to spend Christmas together. So her and her mother are on this plane and it's Christmas Eve. And the, the father is telling him like, don't, don't take that flight. It was flying on Lanza Airlines, which had a notorious, rep- uh, they're notorious for like bad luck or for just shoddy mates. Um, the value like, don't- of Peru. Yeah, he's like, don't take that one. But like, oh, we want to be home. We'll just take this flight. It's a big deal. It's only a few hour flight. What they are, go? yeah, what can go wrong? So they're on the plane, flying, and there's a lightning storm. Wait, was this a full commercial flight, by the way? Yeah, it was uh, like 100 people on this plane. Whoa, okay. Oh. The plane is struck by lightning and literally just starts to break apart in the air. Uh. So she, and she's sitting next to her mom. Uh, and she's wearing, she's still wearing her seatbelt. So she... Like her row of seats, her like trio of seats, takes out of the plane and it just starts like it, the way she described it as much as she. So her seat takes out and it's spinning like a helicopter as she falls to the ground. And the next thing she knows, she's on the ground. She wakes up. She's got like a horrible gash in her arm. gets broken and she can't find anyone else alive. She sees a lot of body parts. She has no idea where her mother is. Um, she is just in the jungle in a plane crash. Um, she like she sees like a some bodies like half buried in the ground from the impact, and she's like scared that it might be her like mother. But all, the only things sticking out visible are the people's bare feet because their shoes flew off because it's a plane crash, and she she only knows it's not her mother because the woman had like painted toenails and her mom didn't have painted toenails. It's like really gruesome, horrible stuff. But she's. She's 18. She's alone in the jungle. But the interesting part is her parents were scientists. They were zoologists. Um, They studied animals. They studied the outdoors. They knew this area. And she grew up in the jungle, essentially. So she weirdly had all these skills that she knew kind of what to do. So the movie would be like very much kind of a kind of cast in, in the vein of Castaway with Tom Hanks. So you've got a few other characters very early on. And then we do kind of like interspersed flashbacks uh, with her parents um, showing them kind of teaching her. So it's not like a surprise of like, how does this girl know how to do this? Is that she's very actually oddly well-equipped to handle this situation. Um, and the true, and this is a true story. So she just like, she survived. She found like candies, like hard candies that were like on the flight. And she, she found like, like a few packages of those. And that's what she lived on. And so she makes her way through the jungle following a river. Um, she knows like kind of if she, if she follows the river, that'll take her to a bigger river that will hopefully take her, take her to civilization. Uh, she only has one shoe. So she's very carefully, slowly making her way. Cause she's kind of like using the shoe to kind of pat, pat the ground in front of her to like drive off any snakes or any, like any animals that might be in the way she's, she's weak and she's hungry. And at one point she sees like tree frogs that she wants to like try to grab and eat, but then like realizes that they are poisonous frogs. So if she did, she'd die. Um, and she sees like rescue flights going over, but it's the jungle. No one can see her. Uh, eventually like uh, historically, I think it was like eight days. Like the search was called off with them, assuming no survivors. So she makes her way to a, to a river. She walks down the river. Uh, she eventually finds a boat 
Uh, so she knows there's people nearby. And then she finds like essentially like a fishing hut that has like clothes and has like kind of supplies, but there's no one there, but it has ghastly Oh, and the huge gash on her arm is now infested with maggots. Uh, and so she like, she uses the gasoline to like clean the wound, which of course like hurts like hell, but it kills the maggots. Um, and then she essentially just hangs out at this hut in the jungle. Cause she knows eventually someone's going to come. And after a day, some like local fishermen come back and they see this, this white girl with like blonde hair who looks like death, who she described as there's like a legend of like this evil river spirits. Um, <laughs> That she thinks like the 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 um the locals thought she was either a crazy person or an actual demon, um, and she had to like convince them. But also, she grew up there. She spoke the language fluently, so she was able to like convey to these fishermen like who she was, what happened, and they took her to a hospital. And she was, you know, eventually like rescued and re- reunited with her with her father. Um, and then went on to just, she became a scientist too, and just lived a pretty normal life, but she had this harrowing experience for less than two weeks. Um, and I think it would be one of those, those movies that you would cast a complete unknown as the main character as Julianne, like a kind of an Anna Paquin thing where it's just like nobody, uh, like, like not someone you'd recognize from anything. It's just like an open casting call. Uh, but then you would have like, um, Kate Blanchett as her mom or like William H. Macy as the dad. Um, and then, so with the director, I was thinking there's a very fascinating real world intersection. Werner Herzog was supposed to be on that. He had the very, Werner. <laughs> yeah, he literally changed his tickets last minute. Oh my gosh. Um, and so he's become fascinated with, he actually made a documentary about it. Where he met, he like tracked her down because she wanted to live very anonymously, but he tracked her down and convinced her to go back and like go to the actual locations and essentially like not relive it, but like go there and talk about it. Like they went to the jungle, they found the plane crash site and like, like looked over the debris and just like talked about her experience. But I would not have that move before that with that soldier also. Yeah, like the um world the world war ii pilot right yeah vietnam i, I think that. it was yeah but i would not want him to direct this movie because i think this movie really needs kind of a like kind of dreamlike or very kind of and i think it needs like a different kind of focus it's not just a survival movie it's not just like it's just it's not just a castaway um i think you need a bit of poetry to it so i would actually have sofia coppola direct this movie and i think she could probably get an oscar nominee she does a good job because she is a very good director. Um, oh, I thought you were going Terrence Malick, but yeah, Sophia. No, oh, Terrence Malick would be good too. But yeah, also that guy makes takes fourteen years to make one movie. I feel like, um, <laughs> yeah, to be a little bit quicker. So Julianne Kupke, Kupke, it's German. I don't know. Julianne Kupke uh, story would be my Oscar bait movie. I'm surprised you want to do an unknown because it seems perfect for like that person who really wants their best actor. Uh, on the mantle you know yeah but i feel like that's because it's got to be she's got to be young Mm -hmm. um so you can't like you have to kind of cast like an elf fanning or yeah like yeah you could maybe get an elf fanning um like or one of the other fannings because there's a bunch of them um dakota's old news now so now it's all about oh but uh yeah yeah like i feel like you could do that i feel like they would really go for that unknown like, oh, like, who's this new star? Like, they want to, this is a star maker role. Yeah. They have that whole story where it's just like, ah, oh, we're seeing people all day and none of them fit. And all of a sudden, once one of their sisters walked in, she was perfect. Yeah. Well, if there's any baby fannings, give it to Terrence Malick. And by the time he's ready, <laughs> baby fanning will have aged into the role. Plans ahead, that, Terrence. Yeah. <laughs> It's like it's the next step after boyhood, I think. So maybe Ethan Hawke should play the uh, ad. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm surprised he doesn't get more work. I like. I like. Okay, cool. Julia. Hey, Andy, you ready? Yes. Yeah, I can go. I can go if, if Kiernan's okay. Uh, all right. Are we ready? Yeah. Okay. Because if you're thinking Oscar bait, yeah, I think the most Oscar baitiest of the Oscar baits is the historical epic. And a lot of them, like ancient Rome, I don't know why, but it seems the most sort of Oscar-y of time periods. Like, you know, you got Ben-Hur, you got Spartacus, you got Gladiator, you probably got a couple I'm forgetting. And I want to go even ancienter, to the third century BC, 
Rome was this republic and it wanted to be an empire and only one man stood in their way, Hannibal Barca. We've already had an Oscar-winning Hannibal, but this is the, the old school, the original Hannibal, the terror of Rome. And uh, it's great because it's also, how should I put it? It's a Hollywood epic, but we'll get a non-Western perspective. What's it like to be on the other end of the expanding empire? And it's a person of color role because Hannibal, we're not sure what race he was, but it was North Africa. So you could get uh, Marshala Ali, Idris Elba, Dev Patel, Lakeith Stanfield. This is, you know, this could do for an actor what what Gladiator did for Russell Crowe. And I also think it's got a great, uh, what's the word? It's got a great theme because it's all about knowing who your enemy is. Hannibal was this great military leader, but he didn't understand what Rome was. Rome was something new. This wasn't an empire. He thought, if I just beat Rome enough times, they'll give up because it becomes too expensive for the leaders of Rome and too dangerous for the soldiers of Rome. They'll give up. What he didn't realize is during the Roman Republic, they had a tradition of the citizen soldier. Everybody in Rome, patrician and plebeian alike, would join the military and like serve their stint, which meant that you could keep pounding them, but they would just, they kept raising another army because there was a real sense of shared sacrifice. They would not give in. So you have this great first act of Hannibal gets the brilliant idea of doing what everybody thought was impossible. Uh, take the forces in Spain, force march them over the Alps and into Italy and like basically launch an invasion of the Italian uh, homeland where Rome is. And he keeps winning and he keeps expecting Rome to buckle, but Rome doesn't buckle because they've got this sense of destiny and they've got a populace that's like, hey, we're Rome, you know, we, there's a sense of like civic duty. So they wouldn't give up. And it culminates in uh, one of the great military victories of all time, the Battle of Cannae, a crushing uh, defeat for the Romans. And one of the Roman survivors was this young, ambitious general named Scipio. So we're also going to get a best supporting actor. Scipio is this young, brilliant military leader. It could be like a Daniel Radcliffe or a Nicholas Holt. And he is at Cannae and he sees why Hannibal keeps winning, because he has a team of professional, experienced, battle-hardened troops. And that's what Rome needs if they need, if they want to defeat Hannibal. So during the second half, you'll have this Scipio guy coming up, in a weird way, sort of taking some of the innovations of Hannibal and, and improving on them. He fights to get a professional, the, the first, uh, well, not gladiators, the first centurions, the first permanent Roman legions. He's fought by this in the current Roman dictator, Fabius, who was doing the strategy of like, he would never engage Hannibal. He would always pull him out and then faint to the left. He would always avoid conflict conflict because he knew, you know, he had this invading force in Italy. Over time, they would just get worn down. They would run out of supplies and food. The problem is Scipio understands that, you know, Rome doesn't want this slow war of attrition. They want, you know, the glory of Rome. They want the victory. And Scipio promises them that. And so they give him the right to raise the first professional army. And he trains these guys like crazy. And he also figures out how to get Hannibal out of Rome, invade North Africa, because Carthage, they don't have this sense of shared sacrifice. If he starts marching on Carthage, Hannibal's bosses are going to say, hey, get the heck out of Italy, come back here and protect us. And that's what they do. And so Hannibal has to leave Italy, even though he knows it dooms his campaign to defeat Rome. And you know, this great, there's a second battle near the end, the Battle of uh, Zama. And it, it also fits the great historical epic, like I'm thinking Spartacus and Braveheart. You have the battle that everybody knows is doomed to fail, but our hero has to fight it anyways. And that's what the Battle of Zama was. I mean, Hannibal lost that battle before he even started, because the mere fact that he had to leave Italy and fight it there meant that he had already lost. Of course, he also gets his ass kicked because it's this new Roman army that is finally capable of defeating the forces of Rome. So Hannibal gets defeated. Scipio is this great hero, the new hero of Rome. Everybody loves him. But of course, there's another great irony here because there's Fabius, that uh, previous Roman dictator, to sort of point out to Scipio, well, yeah, it's it's great, but you know, you were supposed to save the Roman Republic. You, you saved Rome, but you kind of doomed the Republic because now we have this army. They're not Roman. They're not, I mean, they're not taken from the general populace of Rome. They're not loyal to the Roman people. They're loyal to whoever their general is. And over time, that's going to kill a republic, which is in fact what happened under Julius Caesar. So the great irony is Hannibal lost, but you know, in, in, uh, in fighting the fight, he actually doomed the Roman Republic to fall because to beat Hannibal, they had to become the one thing they didn't want to be, which is, you know, just another empire. And so that's, that's my pitch. I want to see 
Hannibal and Scipio, uh, an old style historical Hollywood epic, but you know, with some cool twists. All right. Now give, give us some casting. So, uh, so, so well, you, you, you told us that you got us Hannibal and, um, Scipio, uh, who yeah. are you thinking for Flavius? Oh, for, for Fabius? Like I'm thinking in all, well, the great rule of Roman historical epics in Hollywood Romans are British. So it's going to be like a Bill Nighy or maybe an Anthony Hopkins, you know, one of the older uh, British actors. So, you know, and he probably gets a nomination too. Although I think, I think Scipio is going to be a lock for best supporting actor. Other thoughts. All right. Are you going to do the war elephant? Is there some historical debate on if he actually brought the elephants into Europe? Well, yeah, there is. And there's also a huge debate how effective it was, but it was definitely, what's the word? Psychologically effective. Yeah. Romans, you know, they'd never seen elephants. They were freaking terrified of them. There's a big question how useful they were, because here's the thing. African elephants are like really hard to control. Every war elephant, they gave the guy a big chisel and they're like, hey, if, if this thing starts stampeding on our own troops, just drive this right into the elephant's brainstem. So, yeah, the elephants are pretty cool. Plus, the other thing, uh, that was another thing Scipio thought of. He was like, OK, these elephants, they're great at charging but you can't turn them. You cannot steer an elephant. So he just trained. One of the things these new professional soldiers knew is when the elephants came by, just like form a big tight pack and just have like a clear lane and the elephants will run right past you. <laughs> <laughs> the elephants don't want to run into things. They just, just get it out yeah. of their way. <laughs> yeah. The elephants are like, what the hell is going on here? I just want to be in the bush eating, eating leaves. Yeah. Yes, I like it. HBO's Rome is great. We can always use more. I mean, the one thing about casting, I can't figure out who to have as like a female role. I mean, you could give the other thing is we know very little about Carthage or Hannibal. We have, I think we have very little idea what it looked like. Usually when you see Carthage on screen or on stage, it looks just like Babylon or Egypt, which yeah. I don't know why. But yeah, so I, I guess we could give Carthage. I'm not sure where to put the female role. This would be a very hard movie to pass uh, the Bechtel test. But uh, I don't know. That's for someone else to solve. Because I want, I want my Punic Wars. Ask was Carthage. That was the one they salted the fields, right? Like they uh, yes. burned it into the ground. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Like I guess it would be hard to know. <laughs> you know like what it looks <laughs> exactly. like. Exactly. Rome didn't want anything left. Yeah, that was what was it? Yeah. And it was the craziest thing because they won the Punic War. It was the second one. The thing called the Third Punic War is just Rome still so terrified of Carthage after Hannibal having like run this campaign through their thing. They just decided to go back to Carthage just to destroy it. It was like, it was, yeah, it's the flimsiest pretext for the war. It's just, we still don't like you. So we're just going to burn everything down. And yes, it was the, the premiere of salting the earth. It's the second Iraq war of wars. Yeah, exactly. Although, although I, I mean, tragically for Carthage, it worked out better for Rome than the second <laughs> Iraq war worked out for us. That's for sure. All right. Do you have a title for yours? I don't know, like, because, I mean, it might just be Hannibal. Uh, With an exclamation point at the end? Well, that's Hannibal. a musical. Hannibal, Hannibal, uh, Hannibal, or Carthage, or Rome. I, I, I've been wrestling with that. I'm not sure. I'm open. I'm open to ideas. I mean, it's weird. It was the second Punic War, but the first one just ended because there was a big typhoon and Carthage lost all their ships. So a bit of an anticlimax. So don't make a movie of that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be the waiting waiting for Godot, essentially, of war epics. Okay. okay, well, any other notes about Oscar bait movies? Our pitches for Oscar bait movies, rather? I'm just yeah, curious well, whether we're going to have uh, the Oscars. Yeah. That, uh, Oscars are happening. Well, I think they did say they're allowing streaming films just for this year. Because, I mean... Seriously, what else are they going to do, you know? Yeah, wasn't that the deal Spielberg worked out with the Academy? I did not read the article, but I read the headline that seemed to imply that Spielberg was behind it. Well, there was an early fight because, you know, Netflix would release it for like a couple weeks and then put it on Netflix. And I think some theater chains were getting pissed about that. I'm not sure, but I think Spielberg might have done the compromise for that. This one, I think, is just a one-time thing because, you know, nobody's going to the movies. They'll, they'll take the streamings, but... It's weird, though, because who's going to release their movies as streamers anyways? You know what I mean? It'd be kind yeah. of amazing if they just had, like, ghost theaters that were showing movies to nobody just so you could justify putting it in oh, the running. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That'd be Technically, like this played in a theater. <laughs> it's like every movie got pushed to October. Those would be, like, October five movies a weekend. Huge. Yeah. Every, yeah, every day would be a new premiere. It's, and it's weird yeah. that some some videos are still announcing movies being released in theaters 
like this summer. Like New Mutants is now scheduled for I, July. Yeah, that's oh, a joke. Wow. <laughs> that's a joke. Yeah, that's oh. I, that's that's them trolling um, everyone. I think. Well, I mean, plus I think it's got bad buzz to it. I think their only hope maybe to be the only thing in movie theaters. And like, if no one is no, no one is going to movie theaters in July, like yeah. Everything everything says no one's going back to that kind of thing until the fall at the earliest. Yeah. So, I mean, I know like, even, even if New Mutants came out in a regular time, the theater would only be 25% full. Yeah. It's going to be easy to social distance. There. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like, now, say, say, we would have been a huge hit if it weren't for this horrible pandemic. Oh, darn it. Oh, it's yeah, a good way to spin using it. that excuse already. Yeah, that's been used a lot. Yeah, well, I mean. Didn't Quibi say that? I think Quibi said that about their launch. Oh yeah, Quibi. Oh. But wait, yeah, Quibi's a home thing. This is the perfect time no, to watch home. We're just like, very distracted right now. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean that's like saying, you know, our artisan bread delivery service was upended by the pandemic. You know, no, it wasn't. Nobody had Quibi fever before this happened. Yeah, I'm surprised Oscars just didn't say, okay, we're gonna postpone a year and then next year it'll be for like two years. But I don't know, I guess I guess that's a well, lot of money. it's I feel like it's still doable. It's still kind of months away. Also, like, drive-ins are kind of making a comeback in a way. So just put your movie in a drive-in. It's fine. There's two drive-ins within an hour of downtown Los Angeles. So I feel like that's I guess so. But I mean, two theaters in Los Angeles equals, like, zero drive-ins, I'm sure, for, like, huge chunks of the country. It'd be really hard to get a wide enough release, I think. Yeah, I feel like entrepreneurial spirit should take over and people should (laughs) all those empty mall parking lots into drive-in theaters. Yeah, projected on a projected on the big white wall of the bankrupt Sears that was the anchor store for your mall. Um, like baseball stadiums, you get clearly have a lot of acreage to work with and something to project on. Oh, yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, check out our other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and all podcast apps. Check out our site, thegrandgeekgathering.com, for our articles and the other shows and more. Stay updated from our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our outro music is by Carlisle Laurent. If you loved these pitches, please let us know on Twitter or Instagram. We're burn after pitching. You know how to use Google. If you hated these pitches, please tell us. We love social interaction. We're all lonely. So please visit us on social media. Uh, like I said, Twitter, Instagram, after pitching, you can find us. And do remember to come and join the gathering. Have a great week and GG.